Go ahead and find Exodus chapter 3 with me. Exodus chapter 3, and I'd like to welcome you to our monthly Q&A night, the time in which uh, you ask questions and I uh, attempt to make answers. I was telling Brother Adams about it. He was asking about different things, and, uh, and at first he was under the impression that Q&A night meant that you all shouted out questions to me on the spot, and I uh, answered them, and I can think of nothing scarier in the whole world than that. Um, I like some notice, so I can uh, go look it up. Uh, someone else said, uh, so this morning when I gave you the preview, I gave you the big fancy word, tetragrammaton, someone asked, is that a dinosaur? <clears throat> so you'll, you're about to find out. Here's a question. Please discuss God's name for himself when Moses asked, when Moses asked, and uh, the, uh, the uh, reference is Exodus 3 and verse 14. Let's just begin by reading Exodus 3 verses 13 through 15, and we'll get our feet under us and figure out what it is we're getting at. Exodus 3 and verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, quote, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Verse 15, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So Moses asks God here what his name is. Uh, To be a little more specific, he asks God what he should tell the people should they ask what his name is. And the answer God gives to that question, what is your name? The answer God gives is, I am who I am. And then he says, tell them, I am has sent sent me to you. Verse 15 says, this is my name throughout all generations. So to just open by recognizing what the question is, it's it's a strange question with an even stranger answer, I think. Why does Moses ask for God's name? Did he not know it prior to this? And what kind of a name is, I am who I am? What exactly is God communicating about himself with that answer? It raises a lot of other questions like, does God have a proper name? Like we have proper names, you know, there's John and there's Susie, and then this just happens to be God's name, this answer, I am. Now before we get into the answer to, uh, to solicit your sympathy, For having to answer this question, I'll read you what one commentary on Exodus said about Exodus 3.14. It said, Bible scholars have spent the last 3,000 years trying to understand it, and they still don't agree, because I am who I am is the kind of statement that raises more questions than it answers. And so now I'm going to attempt to settle a 3,000-year-old question in the next 30 minutes. So here's what we're going to do. Number one, we're going to talk about the context. We're going to talk about this passage and what's happening and what's, just what's going on in the passage. Number one, we're going to talk context. Number two, we're going to talk Hebrew. We're going to get in some Hebrew grammar for a little bit. And then number three, we're going to talk about God. What is, this, uh, what is all this that we're going to talk about teach us about God? So context, Hebrew, and God. So, number one, let's talk context. 
So the broader context is the book of Exodus, which opens with Israel groaning under the weight of their Egyptian taskmasters, crying out to their God to do something. And so God begins doing something through the agency of this man, Moses. Um, Moses, as we meet him in Exodus, has has led quite an interesting life to that point. Um, We know the story of him as a baby, and then he grew up in Pharaoh's house, and then he grew up, he uh, spent his adult life to this point as a shepherd out in Midian, out in the wilderness uh, east of of, uh, Egypt. But in chapter 3, God calls him from that burning bush, and he calls him to this new task. This is Exodus 3 and verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you, Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And so that's the initial call of Moses. God announces his plans for Israel And he says, Moses, you're the man who's going to accomplish this. Now, of course, in response, Moses says, God, I think that's a great idea. I thought you'd never ask me. Here I am, send me. Uh, Not quite. This is verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He, God said, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you. That I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So the excuse train starts rolling with Moses here. It continues for the next few paragraphs. Um, the first thing he says to, to God's suggestion, the, God's command that you're going to lead my people out, is he says, Well, who am I? Um, you know, you, you ever notice this before? We, we tend to be uh, strategic when it comes to humility, we pick convenient times to be humble. Now, there are, there are some times when humility comes with great difficulty to us. If we feel we're not getting the credit we deserve, we take great offense. But when someone tells us we need to step up to the plate and we don't really want to, when someone asks us to take on a responsibility we don't want to take on, take, take on now we're quick with the humility card. We say, oh, who am I? Little old me, I'm not cut out for that. That's the kind of thing Moses says. But God cuts through that excuse with a reassurance to Moses, this will not be a solo mission. So to, the answer, to answer the question, who are you, who are you, who am I, God says, well, I'll tell you who you are, Moses. You're the guy I've chosen for this job, and I'm going to be with you every step of the way. Well, that brings us to Moses' second excuse in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? So think of it this way. If Moses' first question in verse 11 is, who am I, his next question in verse 13 is, Well, who are you, God? First, who am I? And God tells him. And then he says, well, who are you? What should I say your name is? And that is God's, what God answers next. So that's the broader context. That's how we get to this question. This is what's happening in Exodus. So let's zoom in on verse 13 for a minute and think about what exactly Moses is asking in verse 13. I actually think this is the first difficult part of the text. Before we get to God's answer is the question. Before we get to the strange answer, there's the strange question. God, what is your name? Now, he actually puts the question in the mouth of the Israelites. He's anticipating 
what they might ask Moses. And so he says, if they ask me, what should I say to them? And to me, that raises kind of a sub-question. Why would they ask that question to Moses? They're going to ask, Moses says, why, what is your name? Well, why, do, why are they asking that question? Is this going to be new information for them, or is there something else going on here? Now, there are different answers that have been ventured, why this question might be asked. And I'll give you a few, and then I'll weigh in with uh, what I think a good approach would be. So, it may be, first of all, they ask God's name because they don't know it. They ask God's name because they're just ignorant of it. They might know him by other titles, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, a more general name for God like Adonai or Lord, but they just have never heard it. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that they no longer know it, that they've forgotten it. So they've been in in Egypt for 400 years, and so perhaps by this point, the old stories of Genesis and the patriarchs are just that, old stories that have faded into memory. And so the, the proper, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, we'll talk about that, um, it is used a number of times in Genesis. And so it's entirely possible to, that it was revealed and known by people in the book of Genesis. But perhaps some have suggested they've been in captivity for so long that the patriarchs and the Abrahamic covenant are distant memories and the God who did that covenanting by this point just seemed like an ancestral God without much modern relevance to them. And their collective knowledge of him had diminished. And so they may genuinely really not know, not think much, that there's much of a difference between the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, and then the gods of Egypt that they've come to know. And that was one God, and these are some gods, and they're just, a, they're just a collective forgetfulness of this God. That's one possibility. It could be that Moses asks this question because he doesn't know the answer. What shall I say to them? Because he doesn't know what the right answer to that question is. So Moses himself had grown up in an Egyptian household. He spent an adulthood to, adulthood to this point in the land of Midian, away from, away from any of his people. He probably was much more familiar with the gods of Egypt and Midian than he was the God of Israel. And so maybe he asks what he should say to the people because Moses just doesn't know the answer. Maybe Moses just has a general understanding of this God, but nothing too specific. It could also be the poss- uh, possibility that the people ask this question and the people know the answer, but they ask this question wanting to see if Moses knows the answer. Maybe that they're using this question to test Moses. And so they say, Moses, you say you're a prophet, a prophet for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses, do you even know his name? Because all we know about you, Mr. Moses, is that you grew up an Egyptian and then you fled town as a fugitive and then you spent the last 40 years who knows where and now you want us to trust you and to believe you, that you are going to lead us out of Egypt, and so maybe, maybe it's a test of Moses. I think one key to understanding this question, though, is to understand the significance of a name. In the ancient world, even now to a lesser extent, but in the ancient world especially, one's name did more than just identify you. One's name spoke to your essence, what you were all about, your identity rather than just your identification. This is why God is always renaming people in the Bible. You notice how God does that? He says, your name's not Abram anymore, it's Abraham. Your name's not Jacob anymore, your name is Israel. Your name's not Saul anymore, your name is Paul. Because at a certain point, their name is misleading. God names them in keeping with with what they are to become. So to ask God's name, I think, is not just to inquire about the consonants and vowels that make up God's identification 
but is more essentially to ask God, what are you all about? What is your character? What do you stand for? What kind of a God are you? Uh, Understanding the question to be about that, um, I think there's another way to take it. So just put yourself in in their shoes, in the shoes of the Israelites for a minute. So Moses turns up one day, after 40 years, AWOL in the wilderness, and he announces that he and his older brother are on a mission from God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, how many centuries have passed since the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? A number of them. How many generations have been born and died in Egypt since then? How many have lived and died in this hell of brick-making slavery? And where has this God of their fathers been this whole time? Even if they had continued to remember him, even if they all knew the covenant name of God, whether or not they knew that personal name by which Genesis identified him, I think it's perfectly understandable that they might respond to Moses telling them that this God sent him back to Egypt by asking Whether there's any evidence that this God could even be trusted. Is this God capable of doing anything? Is this God willing to do anything? Is there any evidence that might warrant that we should trust this God after all these bitter years of slavery in which he's done nothing? The essence of their question, I think, is something like this. What is this God all about? What does this God stand for? Because it doesn't seem seem like he stands for us. Take them that way. I think Moses is anticipating a people who may well know the name of God, the the consonants that make up the name of God, but now doubt that that God could do anything about his his promises. I think they're effectively asking, what can he do? What evidence do we have that he even cares? And what Moses wants to know, what he's anticipating, is that sort of doubt. And what he wants from God is an answer that can reignite the faith faith in this God amidst a doubting Israel. I think at the core, that's what's happening in verse 13 with this question. What shall I say if they come to me asking, what is his name? What's this God all about? What's his character? Can he even do anything? Moses says, how do I respond to that? So, having thought for a while about what exactly the question is getting at, let's think about what the answer is. What exactly is God's answer? Verse 14 again. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So literally... In, uh, in Hebrew, the answer of verse 14, the direct answer to the question, is three words long, and the first and last words are repeated. It's up there on the screen. God's literal answer to the question, what shall I tell them your name is, is, yeah, assure, yeah. Probably not pronouncing it right. And uh, it could be translated, I am who I am. A yeah, I am. Assure who, a yeah, I am. It could also be translated, I will be who I will be. That is God's answer to the question, who are you? I am who I am. At the end of verse 14, that name, that answer, I am who I am, is shortened to just one of those words, the first and last, a yeah, where it says, I am has sent me to you. And when you take that word, a yeah, a first person singular verb, I am, 
And when you make it a third-person verb, he is, you go from a yeah to Yahweh. Okay? More on that name in a second. But at least this is his answer. I am who I am. Uh, and then he shortens it to just I am. And when you take that first-person singular verb and make it a third-person verb, it becomes Yahweh. He is. So that's the factual information. What is the meaning of that information? What is God saying about himself by answering the question, what's your name, with the answer, I am who I am? What does that even mean? Well, in short, I think God answers the question, who are you, by, asking, by answering basically, I am me. I am myself. Me, myself, I. I am God. At his essence, I think this is, this is, uh, this is the issue. At his essence, God is not reducible to any one characteristic or even a collection of, of attributes. God simply is. To say anything else, to say he's the God of the wind and the wave, to say he's the, the great and powerful God, to say he's the, the mighty, holy God, to say anything else and to say that's who God is at, at his essence, to say anything else would either anthropomorphize him or cut him down to size, make him smaller than he actually is. God says, I am God and I will be God at all times and all places. He will be who he is, and he will never be anything less than all of who he is. God is always God. In Genesis, in Exodus, in the rest of the Old Testament, in the New Testament, all the way to today and to eternity. No depiction or description of him will ever do him justice. If God gave himself a name which meant the benevolent one, if that was the answer God gave, I am the benevolent one, well, that might give the impression that he's not anything else or he's... All of, everything else he is is less than that. And so to call him the benevolent one, might, we might say, well, maybe he's not a just one. He's not just. He's not fair. Or if God gave himself a name which meant wrathful one, it might give the impression he's not merciful. When he, if Were he to focus in on one characteristic, it would not capture the whole essence of who he is. God is not reducible to any one of his characteristics. This relates, I'll, I'll refer you back to something we talked about a number of weeks ago in our Wednesday class. This relates, uh, relates to a trait sometimes called divine simplicity, which describes God's unity of character, God's integrity, that God is never double-minded. He never sets apart a part of himself, sets aside a part of himself to act. He never stops being all of who he is. He is always all of God and never anything less. And I think also what part of this answer is getting at is that God cannot be compared to anything in creation God cannot be compared to anything else in the universe. There is no analogy that can do justice to him, just as there is no picture that could possibly do justice to him. I shared this story with you before, uh, but it's like the little boy who shows his mom a picture he drew, and he says, look, mom, I drew a picture of God. And she says, well, we, we don't know, son. We don't know what God looks like. And he points to the picture, and he says, well, now we do. No, we don't. No, we don't. Any picture you would possibly draw of God would not do him justice, which is part of the, what, which is part of the uh, uh, forbidding of, of idolatry, making idols, making pictures of God. God can't be pigeonholed like that. To compare him to anything else other than him would only diminish him because he is without comparison. God's answer is, who am I? I am God. God is God. He is who he is, and he is never anything less than all of who he is. So if I'm right, <clears throat> that Moses' anticipated question in verse 13 is not just about the consonants that make up God's name, 
But it's about God's reputation. It's about God's character. It's about answering a doubting Israel. <clears throat> you know, can we really trust this God anymore? Does he really care about us? If, if I'm right about that, that's really the tone of the question, then I think the revelation of this name is meant to be a reassurance to Israel that he has not changed. That he is who he has always been. And he will always be who he is. God is God. The same God he's always been. So 400 years may have passed in Egypt, but God is still God. He is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's still the God who made the covenant with Abraham that, that said he would make from him, from his descendants, a great nation. He says, Moses, tell them that God, the am God, the great I am sent you. The God who sent you is not a has-been God, not a God who's forgotten, not a God who's lost touch with his people, not a God who's changed his mind about his plans for, for, for his people. God's name is a reassurance. Nothing has changed with this God and nothing will ever change with this God. They serve a God who is always God at all times and all places. The fact that 400 years have passed doesn't change anything about God. It doesn't make a single promise less true. The fact that time has passed because I am. The fact that they're in a different geographical location, Egypt instead of Canaan, that doesn't change anything because God is always. God still is. I am still that God your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, that, so far, is my attempt to just talk through the text and discern what it is that's being revealed as we just read through the verses. Now, let's get a little bit technical, and let's talk a little Hebrew. So here we have that fancy word I uh, teased you with this morning. God's name <clears throat> is a form of the Hebrew verb, yeah, I am, which, as we said, when it becomes a third-person verb, goes from me to he, it becomes this word that you see on the screen, these four letters, Y-H, uh, uh, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. So let me say a few things about that word. Um, it is the most frequently appearing name for God in the Old Testament. Almost 7,000 times that word appears in the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, it appears in every single Old Testament book. This is a good trivia question. It appears in every Old Testament book with the exception of Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Esther. It is often referred to as the Tetragrammaton. I, I, didn't, know, I didn't know this word before last week, but there's a formal name for, for this name for God. Uh, the Tetra refers to the four, and the Grammaton refers to the letter, so literally four letters used in its Hebrew spelling. Now, you'll notice in that word... Um, there are no vowels. It's just uh, Y-H-W-H. Um, that's because in biblical Hebrew, as it was originally written, it did not contain any value, any vowels. Um, so the adding of them, uh, and you'll often see it Y-A-H-W-E-H, the adding of an A and an E to make Yahweh, what that is is a good guess as to how that name would have been pronounced and would be spelled were uh, vowels to be included. And there's good reasons, I think, to think those would be correct vowels. People who know how Hebrew works say that's probably how it was spelled. But that represents a good guess to how the name would be pronounced and spelled when you insert vowels. Now, another uh, side thing, an, an alternate, <clears throat> shorter form of this name uh, appears about 50 times in the Old Testament, mainly in the Psalms, and that is a shortened from Yahweh to just Yah, Y-A-H, um, that shorter form is used in the Hebrew expression that's actually carried over into English, hallelujah, hallelujah, which literally means praise the Lord, or more literally praise 
the I am. Praise, praise the, the, the God's name who we just, we just read in Exodus 3. Now, another matter. <clears throat> Despite this being the most common name for God <clears throat> in the Old Testament, 7,000 times, uh, in our English translations, we actually never see that name written, you'll notice. You'll never see those, those, uh, those letters written, Y-H-W-H, because Yahweh is commonly translated in our English version as the Lord, as the Lord. That's what you'll normally see in your English Bible instead of that, that covenant name of God. You actually see it happening in my version in verse 15 already. Verse 15, God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the Lord. The, the original Hebrew has the tetragrammaton there, has Yahweh there, but already our English translations are, are switching to the, the translation, the Lord. Now, why is that? Well, in subsequent centuries, the Jews came to refuse to say or write the name of God out of reverence and, and out of fear of violating the third commandment of taking the Lord's name in vain. So they so came to revere the name of God, the literal, uh, the literal consonants that made up the name of God, that they didn't even, they didn't even write it. They, choose, they instead chose to substitute the word Adonai, which means Lord, a more general term for God. They instead chose to substitute the word Adonai, Lord, for that. And Jewish, copy, Jewish scribes making copies of the Old Testament would write that name instead of the proper name God revealed. And this practice has been carried over by most English translations who instead of writing Y-H-W-H, instead of writing Yahweh, write Lord, the Lord, in all small capital letters. So when you see that in your Bible, the Lord in small capital letters, what you would have in Hebrew where you're reading Hebrew is the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H. Are you staying with me? Some of you are just sitting there with your mouth open. One other side thing. Let's talk about this word, Jehovah, for a minute. The word Jehovah appears in the King James Version. This is a word that originates uh, from the Middle Ages. About five to 800 years ago, this, this word started popping up. Um, this word was invented during that time by adding the vowels of Adonai, Lord, to the four consonants of the Tetragrammaton. And you get, a, you get something like Jehovah. So Jehovah is really just a mashup of the two names for God used of Yahweh and Adonai, but it didn't actually appear anywhere until about the 1500s, um, but uh, nothing like that appeared in the, original, in the original Hebrew text. So that's just some nerdy technical things about the name. Let's step back now and think uh, big picture a little bit. We've gotten knee-deep in, into grammar and into kind of big metaphysical ideas, Big ideas about God. Let's end by nailing a few takeaways. What do we learn about God from this name? Number one, what does this name reveal about God? Number one, God is mysterious and incomparable. That's what we learn in Exodus 3 and verse 14. God is mysterious and incomparable. There, there is a, a certain irony to God's answer to Moses' question. In revealing this name and telling Moses who he is, God really ends up driving home to us just how little we understand him. So we're ready to hear God's name. We hear the question, what should I tell them your name is? And we hope the answer is going to reveal some big, uh, important, um, you know, all this big information about God. We're going to understand everything about him. And what we get is a name that says God is incomparable. What we get is a name where God simply says, I am who I am. 
I am incomparable. I am beyond anything in creation you could ever wrap your mind around. That's the answer we get. And so we're about to learn, we're about to get all this revelation, and the revelation we get is God is mysterious. At his essence, God simply is. He is God. He is who he is. One man summarizes God's answer this way. God is that which he calls himself, and he calls himself that which he is. In other words, who is God? God is who he is, and that's all there is to it. There's no comparison. There's no perfect analogy. There's no full description we could give. There's no easy parallel from our experience that we can understand. Oh, yeah, God's kind of like my cousin that you met that one time. No, that won't work. That diminishes God. There's nothing in our experience to which we can compare him. He is mysterious. He is incomparable. At his core, that's who he is. And we're going to have to come to terms with that. That We serve a God who is unlike us in every way, almost every way, and who we can't wrap our minds around with a neat little, cute little analogy or pat answer. Number two, God's name reveals that he is eternal and unchanging. He is eternal and unchanging. And so God does not say, I was who I was. He doesn't say, I was that, but now I'm this. I changed my mind about a few things, come to a different view about my relationship to Abraham's covenant. He says, I am who I am. There's no past, there's no future, just an eternal present. God is the one who always is. He is who he is. He has always been who he is. He will always be who he is. As he says at the end of verse 15 again, this is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God always is who he is. There is a steadiness to God. With him, as James says, there is no variation. There is no shadow due to change. God is not capricious. He doesn't vacillate. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't trick us by saying one thing and doing another. He is eternal and he is unchanging. A lot of people think what's happening in revealing his name this way in the context of Exodus is their entire religious experience has been with the gods of Egypt who are wild and and diverse and uh, cannot be counted on and changed their mind and you lived in fear because you never knew where they stood. And, and what, what this is really doing is distinguishing him from those gods and saying this God is absolutely steady. He is always there. He is always himself. And he's never anything less. He is eternal and he is unchanging. Number three, what does this reveal to us about God? That God is self-existent and self-sufficient. Self-existent and self-sufficient. Everything in creation is what it is because of a series of causes and effects. And we could do it. Sometimes we're limited in our knowledge, but it's always there. And so we look at a building, and no one says that building simply is. That building is there because it had builders. And those builders were there because of a series of other events. Every person you have ever met is here because they had parents. And their parents are there because their parents had parents. And their parents are there because their parents had parents. All the way back to Adam and Eve. You could do it with literally anything in the universe. Every tree, every rock. Every mountain, every star, every galaxy, it is all there because they're contingent on something else, all of which can be traced back to the creation of all things. There is nothing in creation that simply is. The only one of whom that can be said is God. He is not dependent on anything 
anyone or anything else. He's not contingent. You don't trace God back to cause and effect. The answer to the question that uh, children will sometimes ask, well, if God made everything, then who made God? The answer is no one made God. It's a part of his nature. He is self-sufficient. He is self-existent. He simply is. He is self-sufficient and in no way dependent on anyone or anything else. This is one of those things we have no experience with. There's no easy analogy for it. God's name draws attention to his self-existence, which is a trait we have no experience with. He's not contingent on anything else. And finally, this name reveals something else. This name also reveals to us that Jesus is God. On one occasion, Jesus was trying to convince some religious leaders that he was the Christ. Finally, he's exasperated with them, and he makes an even bigger claim than that, if it's even possible, a bigger claim than I am the Christ. He says this in John 8 and verse 58, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. He is unmistakably claiming to be the Lord God of Moses, the great I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one to pre-exist all the patriarchs, the one to pre-exist creation itself. He is claiming to be the eternal and self-existent God incarnate. And if you doubt that's what he's actually claiming, what follows immediately after he says that, I am, it says they picked up stones to throw at him. They knew exactly what he was claiming. John records Jesus claiming the same thing in Revelation 1 and verse 8 when he says, I am, magic words, I am the Alpha and the Omega, he who is and who was and who is to come, drawing attention especially to the eternality of God. So knowing the name of God, the the name he reveals to Moses at the burning bush, knowing that name was a great help to Moses. Once he knew God's true identity, he was able to go back to Egypt and he was able to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. And they could all ponder that for a very long time, what it is that meant about God. The rest of Exodus is God living up to his name, the story of God living up to his name, God proving that he is the eternal God who keeps his covenant, God who is still the same God he always was. He hadn't forgotten about Israel. He hadn't changed. He hadn't changed his mind. He always is God. And I think knowing God's name is also a great help to us. If God is the great I am, he who is, he who always is who he is, then that means we serve the same God that Moses served, and that God has not changed. The only difference is that the God of Moses has given us a new name to call him and revealed even more information about himself, which was true when he interacted with Moses, but is now revealed to us. He has revealed to us that there is another name, It's the only name by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ is also identified with this one, the great I Am. So as always, what what you do is ask a good, difficult question, and I muddle about for about 30 minutes, and then at the end I shrug my shoulders and say, that's the best I can do. So that's what I'll do this evening. That's the best I can do. I hope that helps you somewhat understand what God's answer to the question, what is your name? Perhaps there's someone here this evening that needs to come and submit yourself to the unchanging, eternal, self-existent God. God is who he is. And our duty is to conform ourselves around that unchanging fact, that God is there, that God has spoken, that we live in God's world, and our job is to submit to his will. Maybe there's someone that needs to do that right now as we stand and sing. Is it for me to say goodbye, glory, and thy rest?
Praise 